130 billion rand for South Africa to move away from coal, just how is it going to work? Then could export finance hold the key to a greener future? And finally, what on earth is going on with the price of oil and just how is it translating into record prices at the pump? This is no ordinary Wednesday. It's an in-depth look at the events and trends moving markets, shaping the economy and changing the game. A warm welcome. I'm Jeremy Max. In the opening days of the historic COP26 conference, a consortium of European nations, the United Kingdom and the USA, pledging 130 billion rand to help South Africa pivot from coal to renewable energy. I'll ask Investec Global Head of Sustainability, Tanya Dos Santos, what this means for South Africa and for coal and the sector that employs something in the region of 90,000 people. Then, staying with renewable energy, I'll ask Chris Mittman from Investec's export and agency finance team what a just transition from coal could actually look like and the role that exports could play in financing it. Finally, with petrol nearing a 20 rand per litre high after a massive 1 rand 24 cents hike, we'll wade into the murky world of oil prices. Head of Commodities at Investec UK, Callum McPherson, will distill all of it for us. But I want to start in Glasgow, where world leaders have gathered to figure out how to save the planet from the devastating effects of climate change. I'm joined first up by Investec Global Head of Sustainability, Tanya Dos Santos. So, Tanya, a very warm welcome. And let me start with this. We've been inundated in the past few weeks with gloomy predictions on climate change. But in the opening days of what many have billed a last-ditch effort to save our planet, some good news. A 130 billion rands worth of help for South Africa to transition from fossil fuels to renewables. Maybe the lead question here is just how important is this for the country? Hi, Jeremy. Well, this is obviously critical for South Africa for a number of reasons, and it really is a watershed moment, as President Raymond Post described. Firstly, from an economic perspective, to be able to secure financing of this magnitude is a game changer. But also from a climate perspective, where you know, we're really struggling to reduce our carbon emissions as a country because of our strong dependence on fossil fuels to power the economy. And in particular, we, we rely on the dirtiest fossil fuel being coal. So South Africa cannot reach net zero emissions without significant financial and technical support from you know, the G7 and the developed world. So this is a great start to, to meeting those net zero emissions. What do we know about the genesis of this agreement? It's been a long time coming. What went into the negotiations, I wonder? And why has South Africa in particular been singled out? I think you're correct. This deal wasn't brokered overnight in Glasgow. And we already saw in September that South Africa had submitted a revised national determined contribution, and which was more in line with the ambitious goals of the Paris Agreement. I would imagine they were only able to do that because they had some indication that green financing was being discussed with the G7. And then we had the climate envoys of these countries actually visiting South Africa to assess the situation and discuss with the Presidential Climate Commission um, and consider proposals for financing. Why South Africa? Well, South Africa is the largest emitter of carbon in Africa, once again, due to our heavy reliance on coal for power. So, you know, by closing SA coal plants ahead of schedule, 
and investing in power alternatives, it really will have a meaningful impact on the total world's emissions. So, of course, the developed world are going to be interested in participating. But I also think that we are well positioned as a country to be, you know, that test case, that guinea pig or blueprint for how other developing nations could achieve a just transition. And a lot of research and work has already been done by the government in collaboration with many stakeholders over the past few years. So I think that South Africa is relatively ready to hit the ground running and start implementing some of these recommendations. So let's talk about that then. We agree 130 billion rand is a lot of money. How do you think the funds need to be mobilized and prioritized? Well, Jeremy, we don't yet have all those details, but we do know that it will include a range of grant funding, of concessional loans and of risk sharing instruments. And of course, the private sector will also play a very important role. So one of the examples, part of the package, is a proposal that includes $500 million from the Climate Investment Fund. And really, they're looking to accelerate a shift to cleaner industries by mobilizing private finance. You know, divesting from existing infrastructure is actually a lot more complex than investing in renewable energy. So to address this, these investment funds are really used to help de-risk that private sector capital and lower the high costs of investments. And you know what? The local banks are all ready to participate in this type of funding. I'm not asking for a solution here, but I think we need to raise the issue that there has to be some sort of guarantee the money isn't going to be squandered or stolen. When we look at that amount, corruption always has the potential of raising its head, doesn't it? Certainly it does. Um, I think that there is an element of needing to build trust on both sides. SA obviously you know, wants to ensure that it participates without any sniff of corruption. Um, But we mustn't forget that the developing economies have also reneged on their promises, their previous climate finance promises. So both sides really need to act with, you know, trust and integrity. And this deal really signifies a much broader message of both the acknowledgement of northern countries to their climate commitments and a strong affirmation from South Africa to that commitment. So in the end, I think it will set, you know, standard for other such partnerships and that everyone has a vested interest in making this work. Now I want to ask you about the socio-economic side of all of this. This term, just transition, it's featured prominently in discussions of combating climate change, particularly in this country, where the coal sector employs something in the region of 90,000 people, apart from all of those employed in downstream and, I guess, complementary sectors. So the move to renewables, then, what does that mean for that sector and their dependence? Sure. Before I answer that directly, I would firstly say how you know encouraged I am by the narrative coming from the international community in support of this transition being just, equitable, and inclusive. A year ago, you weren't hearing, you know, internationally, you weren't hearing them talking about this as being a culture. So for me, that's very encouraging. But you're right. Extensive studies have shown that, you know, the socioeconomic impacts on communities will be immense, and particularly those surrounding power station, and tens of thousands of jobs are potentially at risk. And this obviously needs to be addressed and replaced in some way. But at the same time, those those same studies also show 
that there could be net growth of hundreds of thousands of jobs as a result of the transition. You know, in the very same areas where coal is located, for example, we could gradually see Eskom's coal-fired power stations being decommissioned and repurposed, which would open up for more activities, for different activities that require new skills and new competencies. So as we build new renewables, we'll also need new transmission lines and distribution networks, and all of these will provide further employment opportunities. Ultimately, what you want to have and what we have to strive for is a net positive effect. And that's where we're going to leave it. Tanya Dos Santos, Investec Global Head of Sustainability. Appreciate your time on No Ordinary Wednesday. Thank you. In just a moment, I'll talk to Investec's export and agency finance team's Chris Mittman about another aspect of sustainable development, export finance for coal. But first, a quick reminder that a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday drops every fortnight. Don't miss it. Subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please rate us. So, Chris Mittman, a very warm welcome to you. We've just been speaking about the idea of just energy transition in South Africa. I'd like to start off by asking you, what's your take on what this might look like, let's say, over the next couple of years? Sure. So, I think there's a new buzzword, just energy transition. We hear a lot about during COP. That The key has got to be just and equitable. What I mean by that, there are 17 SDGs. COP26 is focused on number 13, that's climate. But the clue is in the name, Sustainable Development Goals. And this is where there's divergence. Africa still has massive development requirements. Europe and Americas and large parts of Asia, on the other hand, are already heavily industrialized and massive per capita consumers of power, as well as a carbon emitting infrastructure. So in Africa, however, access to even basic infrastructure is extremely limited. Power, water, sanitation, health, all these things need to be delivered on, but in a sustainable way. So how can just and equitable be translated? I think key will be the Western nations, the OECD, delivering on their promise of $100 billion per annum to help Africa invest in more sustainable carbon-neutral power sources. But also, flip side of that is decarbonizing their own economies whilst helping Africa invest more responsibly than they did when they industrialized. You're in the export finance game, and I'm assuming this is about funding people who sell and ship stuff from South Africa to buyers in other countries. Maybe let's move on to a little bit more about what you do for clients, but I want you to make that important link between that and this notion of sustainability, which I would imagine is also open to definition. It's a very fluid descriptor. 100%. And thanks for the question. I think export finance is the largest industry you've never heard of. It's uh, it's almost remarkable. Uh, we think we're famous, but no one's heard of us, it seems. So it's basically this market is over 100 years old. It's been quietly financing infrastructure developments, largely in emerging markets, mostly in uh, nation-building type infrastructure, roads, hospitals, power generation, rail, that type of stuff. So everyone's heard of AFDB, Afrexim, MEGA, World Bank. Development banks, those guys together finance about $250 billion a year of infrastructure. The export credit market does a similar amount, but again, no one's really heard of it because it just quietly gets on and does it. So, to summarize what it does and how it works, 
is it consists of banks and export credit agencies. These are government trade promotion agencies, thus the, the export credit terminology. Most countries have one, including South Africa and a number of African nations. And the two markets of banks and export credit agencies, otherwise known as ECAs, combine to offer long-term debt to borrowers who are investing in infrastructure. As mentioned, it's mostly nation-building stuff, hugely expensive, but necessary for socioeconomic development. It is a highly disciplined market, and this is what's really what's sort of come of age, if you like. It's taken 100 years, but it's finally hit its stride. It operates under a set of OECD rules, which set out what financing terms these ECAs will offer, depending on the wealth of the country, for instance. So inversely to most banking rules, the poorer you are, the longer you get to repay unusual, but that's the market is there to support investment by developing countries. Also, the industry you're financing. So when green power came out, wind and solar is still relatively young, even though we're all used to it now. This market offered 18-year repayment terms to encourage the developers to invest in this type of technology and for the ECAs to back the exporters and scale the technology, which was then still emerging. And lastly, rail gets 14-year repayment terms, again, improving affordability for governments to invest in that infrastructure. Last point on the ECA market is it has world-beating environmental and social governance and compliance processes long before the term SDG was coined. Loans and project implementation are closely linked. Unlike the bond market, there's strict value for money assessments on the underlying projects. Any bribery and corruption declarations are made by exporters and they have teeth because they're made to governments and they will get investigated by the police if they misstate. Loans are only dispersed against an agreed construction schedule and certification of completion of those works. And they comply with IFC performance standards, equator principles, and OECD common approaches. I mean, really, it is unbeatable as a product where investors are looking to ensure the use of proceeds is strictly controlled and invested as advertised. How are you working the concept or the notion then of sustainability into your operational thinking? So the market has become self-aware that it's a bit special. Uh, what it's been doing on ESG for almost 100 years is really unique on what impact investors are looking for. They want to see proper rigor around assessment of projects and their impact from a carbon or a sustainable perspective. So as a market, it was very interesting. 16 leading banks around the market got together under the ICC and the Rockefeller Foundation to produce a white paper. So the conclusion was basically that we're a really responsible market. We're all doing our own things, our own corporate actions to respond to the sustainability agenda. But what could we do maybe collectively as a $250 billion market to go even further? And we commissioned a white paper. Rockefeller got behind it because they are there, the principle of crowding in private sector to enable impact funds to be leveraged. They're very excited about the export finance market. And this paper was published at the UN General Assembly on the 22nd of September. And it sets out, uh, it's pretty much designed to communicate to those who don't know export finance, maybe the impact investor market, what this product is and how it can be used to further their developmental aims and causes. And also for the export financiers, who I mentioned earlier, we, we think we're famous, but no one knows who we are, actually to become aware 
aware of what's happening outside the export finance industry and crowd in and work out how to work with these impact investors. And some very, very basic things that sort of come out of the report, which are critical to underline. If you look at this concept of greenwashing, which we've all heard about, everything is sustainable. I can't pick up something in the shop without it having green or sustainable written on it. There's necessarily some some creeping skepticism from the discerning public as to, is this really sustainable? So I think one of the key action points the report points out is that we have bulletproof ESG processes. We should make sure everyone knows what they are. And we should also have consistency amongst the government agencies, recognizing you've got 35 to 40 major government agencies here uh, who sort of dictate the conversation. They're all looking at different ways to measure the socioeconomic and carbon impact of projects. The paper sort of modestly suggests there should be one consistent definition, and then all projects are measured against those definitions, probably loan market association, green social loan principles. Uh, And then it makes it a very safe place for investors to go and invest their impact dollars because there's all these mechanisms and safety procedures which exist in the market. I just want to end on this white paper, if we can, and push it a little bit further. I always get a little bit skeptical when I hear reference to white papers. Maybe it's just a South African political issue. How do you ensure, Chris, that there is action on that white paper? And what I mean by action, that you're ensuring meaningful adherence and people actually respecting and acting on those recommendations. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm almost tired of saying the real work starts now, but the real work <laughs> starts, now. starts now. It took about six months to get all those 16 banks to play nicely together and commission the paper and set terms of reference and work out who was going to be appointed to write it. Then it took nine months to produce, and now it's produced. This is when the rubber hits the road. And uh, to answer your question, the ICC has really lent into this uh, initiative. And that's why it was they viewed it to be so important that it was launched during the UN General Assembly. The, the market even got mentioned in the Financial Times, a lot of interest in this market as a potential player in delivering on the SDGs. But since then, it's been a relentless roadshow of talking people through the white paper. I met with all the ECAs in Budapest at their annual general meeting of the Bern Union and subsequently at various conference events, national business associations, banking associations across Europe, the Americas and Asia, because this is very much a global initiative, not just a European initiative. And we're already seeing, I mean, you you can't always say there's cause and effect here, but we have seen some progress since the white paper was launched. People have heard it coming nine months ago. They knew it was coming. Lots of signaling. Uh, Since it was launched, we've seen the OECD announce that they're going to cease support of unabated coal-fired power generation which is fantastic. We've also seen that the Chinese announced that they're not going to be exporting any more coal-fired power technology. Uh, We'd like to see them go a bit further. We want to see more announcements coming out of COP26. As a bank who lives in Africa, we're hugely passionate about the impact that social infrastructure can have on people's lives. Yes, the carbon emission side of things is hugely important and arguably the real emergency. But when I build a wind farm in Africa, I get 18 years to repay the money. If I build a hospital, which costs money to build and then costs money to operate, it doesn't make money, it costs money. I only get 10 years to repay. And our modest submission in the white paper is that hospitals should get the same long tenor 
things like wind farms do, because the impact on people's lives is immeasurable and immediate. And by extending repayment terms, governments and the private sector can afford to invest in more of this infrastructure. And that's where we are going to leave it. My thanks to Chris Mitman. Appreciate you joining us on No Ordinary Wednesday. Thank you. On every episode of No Ordinary Wednesday, we pick a question about the world of money that's been on our listeners' minds, and we'll do our best to answer it. If you've got such a question, I invite you to go to investec.com forward slash now. That's investec.com forward slash N-O-W, and share your conundrum with us. Now, in recent days, the price of petrol has increased by 1 rand 24 cents a litre. This means since January 2021, the petrol price has gone up by around 4 rand 60. Some of this has to do with various levies and refining costs, but a big factor is the price of oil. In April 2020, at the height of the first COVID lockdown, we saw headlines about West Texas crude dropping to negative $37 a barrel. Admittedly, there was more to this anomaly that meets the eye, much of it to do with the intricacies of the futures market and price wars between oil-producing nations. But 18 months later, Brent crude is back up to $80 a barrel. So what's behind this dramatic swing and what's the prognosis for the oil price in the foreseeable future? Investec UK Head of Commodities Callum McPherson is the person with the answers. So, Callum, a very warm welcome, and let me start with this. What are the big factors influencing the oil price right now? Well, if we look back at really the state of the market and and how it's recovered from the depths of the pandemic last year, there has been a very substantial recovery, even in the aviation sector, which has been obviously one of the most challenging uh, ones from an oil demand point of view. But we still have OPEC plus cuts in place. We still have a non-OPEC plus production in the US, for for example, below pre-pandemic levels. We've also had a couple of disruptions. Hurricane Ida, for example, in the US reduced production there by around a million barrels per day for a month. So that was a pretty significant knock-on effect in the market. And there were also some disruptions to OPEC plus members, uh, Nigerian and Kazakhstan, that uh, so fell behind their production limits for a little while. And then on top of that, really starting last month particularly, we've had a very high gas price environment all over the world, particularly in Europe and in Asia, where there's been very strong competition for liquefied natural gas cargoes, which is now a very important source of gas supply. And this has led to gas prices trading over $100 per barrel in energy equivalent terms. And so if in countries where there is oil-fired power generation capacity, for example, that would not normally be used because people burn gas instead, that sort of capacity is now being switched on. And so we're seeing some, not enormous, but some limited switching from gas into oil, which is consequently another source of oil demand. So overall, the current environment is very supportive, oil demand is very strong, and the market, as a consequence, is in a deficit. And Callum, some context perhaps to your initial assessment. How does this year's oil market compare to previous years? Well, of course, it's very different to last year because we had this 
tremendous demand shock from COVID. But if we compare that to pre-COVID levels to sort of 2019, we see, I mean, looking at, for example, the International Energy Agency's forecast, they're expecting oil demand this year to, to average uh, 96 million barrels per day. Um, it started the year below that level, and, and for this quarter, probably up to something like 98 million barrels per day. And so consequently, we're getting back towards the 100 million barrel per day level that, that we had in 2019 before the uh, pandemic took hold. And as we move into next year, that recovery looks likely to continue so that towards the end of next year, we probably will be back to 100 million or over 100 million barrels per day of demand. And beyond that, look into your crystal ball the next couple of months after that? Well, I think if we look at the next uh, few months, the market is, uh, as I said, extremely tight. So I think it's very likely that prices will remain elevated over the winter. And we've got Brent at $83.5 per barrel on the screen at the moment. There was a significant technical development. So looking at the charts, what they might tell us relatively recently when Brent broke through a long-term downtrend that had been in place since the, the high before the financial crisis when Brent went over $140 per barrel. So it, it has broken through that downtrend. And this is why it becomes uh, not a crazy idea to, to talk about potentially the market going up to $90 per barrel or, or maybe even higher. And uh, if you look at the positions of speculative traders on, on exchanges, you can see that actually the, the extent of speculative long positions is, is not that high compared to history. So just from that point of view, there does seem to be potential for, for speculative players to get more involved in the market and possibly help to push it higher. That's sort of over this winter. Looking further ahead, though, things become rather cloudier, I think, because a lot of forecasts, for example, the International Energy Agency are expecting that the uh, market could become oversupplied next year as OPEC Plus continues to unwind its cuts. And they also put through a kind of rebasing of levels, which essentially means I'll be able to produce more oil. And indeed, the Saudis were sort of talking about this in, in run-up to the last OPEC meeting, that they're, they're very nervous about increasing supply more than they had uh, the 400,000 barrels per day that they've been doing in recent months, because they've got concerns about the market being oversupplied next year. There's also the possibility of something being done with Iran around its sanctions, and maybe Iranian production will come back. But I think there's a possible counter-argument to that, though, is what will happen with non-OPEC plus production, and particularly the, the US, where it's not actually that clear that uh, so far that higher prices are stimulating more output, and perhaps US production will not come back as quickly as people expect next year. Or if it does, it will need relatively high prices to justify that extra output. Thank you very much indeed, Callum McPherson. Appreciate you joining me on No Ordinary Wednesday. Thanks very much. Please join us again on the 24th of November as we continue to explore money trends shaping our world. If you haven't yet added us to your podcast feed, search for Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Until next time, goodbye from me, Jeremy Maggs, and the entire Focus Radio team. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Limited and subsidiaries, authorized financial service providers, registered credit providers, and long-term insurer.